The final words of Paul in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly <coughs> as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Things get somewhat weighty, they get surprising uh, when you've been in a place for 37 years. My brother Chuck, uh, who's 13 months older than I, contemplated becoming a conscientious objector near the end of the Vietnam War. He was 18 and had just graduated from high school. His draft number was 21, and he was certain to be conscripted to join the military. And I remember the theological discussions around the just war doctrine about whether the Vietnam War was a morally just war, was the intentions right, was it being waged to redress injury, restore justice, and restrain evil, is the war perceived as winnable? There was a lot of doubts about the war in the early 1970s. Conscription into the U.S. military or being drafted was a practice the federal government initiated in the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Korean and Vietnam Wars. The men were drafted to fill vacancies that could not be filled through voluntary means. Over two million men were drafted for the Vietnam War, even though the majority of servicemen deployed in Vietnam were volunteers, of which were over eight million soldiers. But after decades of fighting and billions and billions of dollars spent and nearly 60,000 Americans giving their lives with many more injuries and seeing no end to, or ability to succeed, President Nixon signed a ceasefire in January of 1973 and the draft was ended and the American forces were pulled out. And so my brother was not drafted 
And the questions of being a conscientious objector or discussions around the just war ended. I believe I was probably one of the last of the 18-year-olds who had registered for the draft, and my number was over 300, so high it would most likely, I would most likely not have been called even if it was still operating. So neither my brother or I were deliberating anymore of whether we are going to fight in Vietnam. Many faithful and good soldiers and civilians gave their lives and shed blood on that soil, and we should be grateful and thankful for the sacrifices and hold them in high honor and esteem. As the Apostle Paul comes to the conclusion of this letter to the Ephesian believers, what we find here is that there is no language about a draft for believers into the military or a request for volunteers who have chosen to fight on the front line of the battle. There is no language that demarcates a civilian force from a military force. Paul's language is this. If you are a believer, you are in the war. If you profess Christ as your Lord, your leader, and your captain, you have chosen your side, and war has been declared against you. I remember the surprise of many Americans in response to the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in Washington, D.C. Many Americans were surprised that there was such hatred for Americans from certain people and nations in the world, so much so that such people would kill any American they could if they had the opportunity, and they would do it in the name of their God. Yet, there is no hint of surprise in Paul's language about such an enemy or such hatred against Christians that Paul is referring to in these verses. No, if you profess faith in Christ, you are the object of utter abhorrence and animosity by an enemy who would like nothing less than to destroy, disarm, disable, and to defeat you. If you do not profess faith in Jesus Christ, don't be deceived. You are not safe. You are hated as well because all divine image bearers of God, this enemy despises. His objective is to destroy every remnant of the divine image in all humanity. He is called Apollyon in Revelation 9:11, which means destroyer, and that is his aim. But it is true that the ruler of this evil empire has targeted believers. You are in his crosshairs. Revelation 12, 17 talks about the dragon, or Satan was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil does not feel that threatened by unbelievers because he already feels in control of them as they do his bidding unaware, and he likes it that way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached and wrote a massive volume on this text, said, the Christian life in the first place 
is a warfare and struggle. It is not a life of ease. This is not an invitation to come to a clinic and make you feel better. There is nothing sentimental here. We are in enemy territory. This is a warfare you and I have to wage. And for Paul, his letter was not complete to merely end with calling believers uh, just to walk as children of light or to be imitators of God or to walk and live as worthy of the calling that they have received as Christians, which takes up chapters 4 and 5. And starting next week, we will actually start a series in the month of August on uh, living as children of light. But he doesn't end with just the call to live as children of light. No, he ends with an urgent call to pray in the context of war. And so this month of July has been a month focused for us on the call to prayer, and particularly the call of prayer from the heart of Paul to the Ephesians. And to quickly review, we've seen that in chapter 1, Paul erupts with overflowing praise to God for every spiritual blessing in the heavens, and that a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered prayer needs to, as a norm, start off with praise and thanksgiving, to spend time exalting God for who he is and what he has done to accomplish such a great salvation for us. We also learn that gospel-centered prayer before praying for new things or present challenges that, that we might be facing seeks God, for a spirit of wisdom and understanding, seeks to have our eyes open to what we already have and possess in Christ. That is, that we are to pray that we would understand the hope that we have, the riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ, that we are co-heirs, joint heirs, as beloved sons and daughters. Everything that Jesus owns, we possess with him, so that we don't have to make an idolatry of the wealth in this world and chase the to all the toys while things that we cannot hold. Also that we would understand the power and the resources that we have in Christ, that we have the exact same power as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who transformed corrupt, decaying, dying selves into an immortal, eternal, glorified body. We also learn that gospel-centered, Christ-centered prayer prays after forwarding the divine plan of God for his church, his plan, his purpose, his mission for the church, which is that through the church, Christ's beloved bride, his incarnational body and presence on the earth, though weak and flawed, would faithfully display before the watching universe the unity of Christ through the reconciling of Jews and Gentiles, of slave and free, of male and female, religious and irreligious, the insiders and the outsiders, that they would be united across the historic enemies and ent entities uh, through the cross, through the blood, making Christ, in Christ, one new man, one body, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all. And so Paul prays that the Ephesians would be faithful in this supernatural witness of unity before the world so that people and other presently lost sons and daughters would come home and see Jesus. 
And so Paul knows that in order to live and to do that, they're going to need a very deep experiential sense of the love of God. And so he prays that they would know how wide and deep and high and long is the love of God, that they would be fulfilled with this love, that they could show forth the beloved community before the world, and they could grow in the maturity of God and that they could experience the immeasurably more that God would ever dream or imagine us to do. And so Paul, he spends a lot of time praying. He's praying. 20% of Ephesians is Paul's prayers or focused prayers for this church. He opens the letter in prayer, and in these final words, he gives this final charge to the Ephesians to pray. He calls them to pray. Paul knew that prayer and the praying Christian, the praying church, was utterly essential for the health, the joy, and the prevailing mission uh, in the world. But this is not a civilian prayer. This is not a non-combatant prayer appeal. This is a warfare prayer. This is a battle prayer for believers under enemy fire, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication. This is a prayer for believers for the church under attack. And so Paul calls believers to be strong in the Lord and to pray. And he tells the Ephesians how to be strong in the Lord. And we can be strong as we know and understand the enemy as we stand our ground by putting on the full armor, and as we pray in the Spirit. But before we jump to these particular points, I think it's important for just to linger a little bit on that opening statement. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his strength, or in the strength of his power. You know, Paul says, he does not say, finally, be good Christians. He doesn't say, finally, do right. He doesn't say, finally, be moral people. Or finally, believe in yourself. Or finally, be strong. Be strong in yourself. You can do it. But finally, be strong in the Lord. The focus is on the Lord and his strength. To acknowledge that you are a weak person, but you have a strong Savior. Paul said, in 2 Corinthians 11, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I remember when I first uh, was an intern and thinking about the gospel ministry. I remember talking to Mark, my, the pastor that was training me. I said, you know, I'm always struggling with feeling inadequate and incompetent. And he says, you always will. Uh, and now, as I'm nearing the end of this term of pastoring here, I will say this. I always feel inadequate and incompetent. But you know what? That's a good place to be. Uh, it's a good place to know your weaknesses. It's a good place to know that you don't have the power in your own strength. You don't have the mental power, the capacity to fulfill this calling, you need to live and embrace your weaknesses because as you do, you are in an embrace to the Savior who can give you the strength to do what he's called you to do and bless God's people.
Paul, I appreciate how he uh, said in, to the Corinthians about how he was feeling beyond their ability to endure, he says, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on, the God, on God who raises the dead. So our dependency needs to be on this strong God, be, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Stott said, behind these words that Jesus gave us to pray are the implications that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. And this is an important diagnostic question for us. Our prayer lives reveal the level of our dependency. As we look at our prayer lives, it raises the question and reveals the level that we are seeking to be strong in the Lord. It's the sobering thing, and Paul wants us to know, he wants to hear from us, he wants us to pray. He wants us to gather in prayer. He wants us to, that prayer should be the first thing that we do and not the last. But he says, know your enemy. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, there's probably three predominant views of on Satan. One view is that we live in a world where there's, you know, there's good and there's evil. That there was a good God who uh, is responsible for things, but there's also this equal opposite force, uh, demiurge, and there's this, there, that there is uh, this material world and there's the spiritual uh, good world, and of course you have the Gnostic aspects, but in that regard, there's this idea of that there's a good God and there's an evil God, and they're at odds against each other. And then there's the other view that there are no personal aspects of real evil, that there's no personality of evil out there, that really the world is messed up as it is because we're just not perfect yet, but as we evolve, as we improve ourselves, that we, we will become more perfect and those, those negative things in our world and life will be dismissed. Uh, French critic and poet Pierre Charles Baudelaire wrote, the devil's cleverest while is to convince us that he does not exist. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there was an interesting book, by the way, that came out uh, some years ago by psychiatrist Scott Peck uh, called People of Lie, Hope for Healing hu uh, Human Evil. And uh, he originally set out to, uh, to, to reveal through a scientific study to confirm the fact that uh, there is no such thing as the devil. And so it was case study after case study after case study that he became he came to the conclusion that of the existence of the devil. He says, "I know that Satan is real. I have met it. 
he came to real, realize just in the capacity of studying the evil in human beings that there was a spiritual force bigger and real. Well, Jesus presents to us in the scripture, there's no apology, there's no apologetic. He just acknowledges the reality that there are there is a demonic spiritual forces and that there is a devil. It's acknowledged. There are cosmic powers and they're personal. And so in Matthew 12 that we heard in the scripture reading concerning when Jesus cast out this, uh, the demons from this man that was, uh, could, was blind and mute, that the Pharisees attacked Jesus saying, well, uh, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And then Jesus corrected their theology. How can uh, Satan have a divided kingdom? How can Satan, if he drives out Satan to be divided against himself. That's ridiculous. Uh, and then <clears throat> he talks about, or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possession unless, the, unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. And what Jesus was alluding to, that Jesus has come to tie up the strong man, and he's going to carry out the possessions. <clears throat> he's going to tie up Satan. He's going to tie up the devil, and he's going to carry out those who he has, main, has had captive under his power. In 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of Man, Son of God, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Hebrews 2, it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. In John 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus was clear that there was a e real personal evil power present. His name is, comes by the word devil. Uh, it's, he, is, uh, he said he is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks lies. That is his native tongue. He is the father of lies. And so Jesus made it very clear. If we hope to overcome them, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principle, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention or, rest or restrict to or partially civilize the weapons of warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous, ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. And this is uh, Stott's words about the nature of this evil one. And so these demons, J.I. Packer says, or devil, are spiritual beings, corrupt and hostile to both God and man. The demons were fallen angels, deathless creatures serving Satan, Having joined Satan's rebellion, they were cast out of heaven to await final judgment. Their minds are permanently set to oppose God, goodness, truth, the kingdom of Christ, and the welfare of human beings, and they have real, if limited, power and freedom of movement. Though, in Calvin's picturesque phrase, they drag their chains wherever they go and can never hope to overcome God. And so it's important for us to realize that Jesus went to the cross to defeat and to destroy the works of Satan, and that he is a defeated foe. Even though at this point in our history, there is a cleanup operation going on, but in the process, he is doing everything he can to prevent uh, the forwarding of the kingdom of God, and his strategies, or his wiles, uh, his 
uh, are these tactics, uh, ingenious deceptions. Uh, he comes as an angel of light. Uh, we're caught unsuspecting. Uh, he will seek to discourage, depress, and deceive us. And so we need to recognize these wiles, and probably one of the best books to help you enter into the mind of Satan is probably uh, Screwtape Letters, which is uh, C.S. Lewis's, you know, that was the hardest book that C.S. Lewis, he said he ever wrote. It was the most difficult because he had to enter into what he perceived as the mind of Satan in terms of, of tripping up and deceiving people and just the insidious ways uh, Satan operates in the world. But what we find is that you need to recognize that you do have a foe. He is evil, but we must not become fixated or obsessed by this person. Uh, Jesus made it very clear that we are not to be afraid of those who can kill the body, of him who can kill the body, but, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can kill and destroy both soul and body in hell. And who is Jesus talking about? He's saying that the only person that you and I should fear is God himself. That God... Is he, because whoever you fear is the one that you will follow or you one who, you, who will control you. And Satan wants to destroy you. Do not fear Satan. God is the defeater of Satan. Our call is to fear God because this God that we are to fear is worthy of our worship. It's a reverence. It is a, an awesome thing to know this powerful God who loves us to the very depths. And he calls us to put on the full armor. He calls us to stand our ground. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand your ground within the, oh, stand within the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You know, there's an evil day. Uh, it's an interesting frame, uh, the word evil day, which means that not all days are the same. There are some days there are a mounting of evil forces that come at you from every single possible angle trying utterly to defeat you. And you think about when Satan came to, to tempt Jesus. It was after 40 days of fasting. And it says when Jesus you know, was hungry, he came to him. And then he tempts him, and Jesus is victorious, and says, and he left uh, to come back at a more opportune time. Satan is looking for the opportune times in your life, in my life, to basically destroy us and to, dis and to defeat us. And so we need to put on the full armor of God. And this, uh, we don't have time to go into all the details of this he gives the belt of truth. This is often considered, could be the truth of God's word, but that's brought up later. It's more thought that this is dealing with personal integrity. Uh, it is dealing with the having a clear conscience. Uh, Psalm 51, that God desires truth in the inner parts, uh, that uh, a good conscience and a sincere faith um, is what Paul calls Timothy to. And so we must recognize that having a clear conscience, leading our lives before God with a clear conscience is a very important part of our warfare. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness, which is really the justification of God's work through Christ alone. 
Uh, our tendency is that we want to justify ourselves. We want to build our reputations. We want uh, to create ways that we clothe ourselves with our own works of righteousness and, and, uh, and we have to constantly put on the righteousness of Christ. Um, the gospel of peace, uh, the readiness of these feet fitted with the gospel of peace, and this is really that we are called to be a people that advance with good news in word and deed, and what, what we're doing here with the plant arts and, and the summer at faith. A shield of faith ex extinguishing the flaming darts. Uh, the shield was like a two-by-four-foot major uh, round shield that covered the whole person, the Roman soldier. Two layers of wood glued together, covered first with linen and with hide with iron, and it uh, put out the incendiary missiles that were dipped in pitch coming at the believers or at the Roman soldiers, but for the believer, those flaming darts are the accusations of Satan. And this is what Satan will tell you. Satan will say, you're such a big sinner. God can't love you. You've just done too many bad things. And look, your life is just a wreck. See, you're all alone. God will not take care of you. You can't trust God. All of those particular arrows of the evil one come at us, but the shield of faith is to say, I have given my heart to Christ. I believe in my faith might be weak, but I have a strong God. <clears throat> and so the last item is the sword of the Spirit. Of the six pieces, only one can be used for the attack as well as defense. Uh, and this is the word of God. It was a short sword, but it's one that we are called to go on the offense with as well as, as defense. And so this word, this, uh, this armor is something that we're to put on, but then... He moves to this last part, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To this end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Some have thought, well, maybe prayer is just one more part of the Christian armor, but actually it isn't. Uh, prayer is what is to be the atmosphere and the attitude that we put on all of that armor. Uh, it is the... It, is, it should permeate uh, the Christian life. Uh, it's been said we must, we must pray with all kinds of prayers, public, private, secret, social, solitary, solemn, sudden, with all the parts of prayer, confession of sin, petition for mercy and thanksgiving, for all favors received. You know, God is not impressed with long prayers. But he's, he is touched by a sincere heart that wants a relationship with him. And so he delights in your presence. You just come to the Father. Uh, I, I had heard that um, one of the main things that, uh, this was in Papua New Guinea, uh, that there were people that just were devoted to praying for the wives of missionaries. And the reason is, is because they knew that the wives were being attacked by demonic forces and if they could destroy and discourage and take out the wife they could take out the, the whole mission missionary um, but 
as you think about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he uh, was considered the prince of preachers in England, uh, just massive uh, preacher with uh, thousands and thousands of people coming to listen to him. Uh, but Spurgeon was very clear that the success of his preaching was not because of his giftedness, but because of the people's faithful prayers for him. He says, it has often been remarked that the whole church helped produce Spurgeon. When visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would take them to the basement prayer room, the church's bulla room, which what was called, or uh, where people were always on their knees uh, interceding. And, and Spurgeon was declared, here is the powerhouse of this church. And so he saw that prayer was the most important thing. The congregation gathering for prayer was the most important meeting of the week. And he said the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meeting. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he, if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be in a slothfulness in prayer. Uh, one of the, my favorite quotes, um, take it for the next couple slides, but it says, In all states of dilemma or of difficulty, prayer is an available source. The ship of prayer may sail through all temptations, doubts, and fears straight up to the throne of God, and though she may be outward bound with only griefs and groans and sighs, she shall return freighted with a wealth of blessing. <laughs> you know, Paul encourages the Ephesians to pray at all times in the Spirit. And what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It doesn't mean that you have to go into some type of trance or some kind of a spiritual, like, upper state like you have to find. But praying in the Spirit is really praying in the relationship with the Holy Spirit in truth. Uh, Jesus says he wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. And so praying in the Holy Spirit is having a relationship with God through Christ uh, and seeking the earnestness of his presence. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that is to practice what Paul does in Ephesians. He opens up with praise and thanksgiving for who he is and what he's done. He prays that we would know the blessings that he's given to us uh, before he goes into petitions. And so praying in the Spirit it seeks uh, that relationship. I'd like to uh, draw your attention to this picture. Uh, that's, this is Ephesus. <laughs> In 2007, I was able to visit uh, Turkey, go to Turkey, and uh, I was able to tour the, uh, I guess, the remains of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, and this is the main street uh, that goes down uh, to the center of Ephesus, and uh, it was a very sobering thing because Ephesus was the place where Paul um, spent most of his time as an apostle in one particular place, in one particular church. Uh, so he walked up and down this street, uh, and the kingdom of God advanced uh, and permeated that whole region uh, through uh, his ministry in Ephesus. Uh, the seven letters to uh, the churches of Revelation, of Revelation that we 
had gone through uh, some weeks ago. Uh, you know, Paul, it all started at Ephesus. And when Paul met with the elders for the last time in Miletus to give them the final words, he says certain things to them. He says this. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you each of you night and day with tears now I commit to you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified well the church in Turkey as we know you know eventually passed away as well as all the other churches that are written in Revelation and we've seen in Revelation 3 where Paul gives these or that Jesus gives the words to the Ephesians that, uh, that he had something against them, that they had forsaken their first love. And he called them to repent and do the things they did at first, or that he would remove their, light, their lampstand. Um, what Paul is referring to, what Jesus is referring to, is that there are, there's a threat against God's church. And the forces of evil want to destroy his work among us. And so, and particularly in a time of transition, <laughs> in a time of transition, there are going to be greater forces to seek to defeat and to destroy and to discourage and to divide this church. And so, church, and all of you who have any sense of affection and appreciation for God's work among us, I am exhorting you to pray for this body in this time. To pray for Bill Bowling and Emily and the search committee as they gather, as they pray, as they work through all the details and the searching of the next senior pastor for faith. I'm exhorting you to gather in prayer uh, and to, to pray for this whole process that Satan would not find a way to have a stronghold in this flock. I can think of four quick things that I can see where he would want to destroy us. And one is that he would want to divide this body. He would want to like create schisms and uh, ways that people would want to uh, to depart, and so I'm encouraging you to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, to fight for the unity of the body. I think he will also uh, want to have people demonize one another. You know, uh, we see a person that we don't like, or they do something that, that, that we don't like, or they say something that we don't like, and then we all, all of a sudden put them in a category where there's something other, and they, we actually demonize this person versus seeing this is a brother, sister, I need to engage them, I need to seek reconciliation with them, I need to seek God's truth and love with them. Uh, we need to uh, not discount or dismiss 
the importance of the word of truth. That God's word is perfect in all of its, in all of its measures. Um, even though we don't have the original documents, uh, God has given us the clarity of the scriptures and we can base and trust our lives on his word. And finally, let us not diminish the value of prayer. Let us pray at all times with all kinds of prayer requests. Let's pray now. Lord Jesus, as we uh, come to the conclusion of Paul's words here, uh, we thank you that you are a victorious Savior, that you died on the cross, you rose from the dead, you ascended to heaven, and Lord You reign even now. You have seated us in the heavenly places. We have the power of the resurrected Jesus in our own being. And so, God, we claim that, and we pray that you would protect your flock here of Faith Christian Fellowship. We pray, particularly in this season, that you would give them your spirit, that they would be a people uh, anchored in the truth of your word. Uh, that would be a people that would put on the breastplate of righteousness, that they would know that they are adopted, beloved sons and daughters. They don't have to work uh, for, their, uh, for glory and reputation, but they can serve you and your kingdom. God, I pray that you would give a heart and a spirit of prayer in this place. I pray that people would, I pray this church would gather for prayer and to depend on you corporately uh, in this season. Lord, would you forward your kingdom? Thank you. Uh, for your good work here, and we just commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.